This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I have never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. And today, what are we talking about? Vision of the Future, book two in the Hand of Thrawn duology, written by Timothy Zahn and published by Bantam Spectra in September 1998. So we're getting almost recent? No, not, no. not, not at all. Contrary to what we always think, the year 2000 was not a mere few years ago. <laughs> this is Timothy Zahn's fifth Star Wars novel, and essentially serves as the endpoint of the Bantam Spectre era. It was released almost a year after Spectre of the Past. Tales from the Empire, Wraith Squadron, Rebel Dawn, I Jedi, Mandalorian Armor, Iron Fist, and several Galaxy of Hero books were released between these two. Only six more books were published by Banta Spectra after Vision of the Future, but all of them took place earlier in the timeline. Per a tweet from at Darth Infirmus, an editor at Del Rey, back in June 2022, this is the longest Star Wars book ever written, clocking in at about 219,000 words. Yeah, that's a lot. The second longest is Star by Star in the New Jedi Order, and that's only about 202,500 words. Only. Yeah. And I think third might be lesser evil, and that was like around 170 or 180, he said. Also, per a tweet from at MelvinSmile3, the German version of this book is actually split into two parts. So, given how long this book is, we'll be following Germany's example and splitting <laughs> this book into two episodes. You can expect the second half of it a month from now. We simply can't be relied upon to summarize succinctly enough, I suppose. Well, it's this long. The New Republic is in chaos. The issue of the Bothan sabotage of the Kamash shield generators is threatening to tear the Republic apart. Card is off to find a non-Imperial copy of the Kamash document, while others fear that Thrawn has returned. Paleon is still waiting for Bella Bliss to talk about peace, and Han and Leia are at Packreek Major. And through it all, Jedi Master Luke Skywalker is nowhere to be found. He's left the known galaxy and is off to save his friend, Mara Jade. While you like Spectre of the Past, I think it's fair to say that was a bit of a letdown for you, despite the fact that it did keep you interested in reading the entire time. How are you feeling heading into Vision of the Future? Yeah, I mean, in some ways you could say this was apparently super compelling for me because I was just like, I'm not going to wait to record before I read the next one. In fact, I'm not even going to wait for Tom to finish reading Vision of the Future so that I can have the copy. I'm going to buy the ebook version on Kobo so that I can read it right now. <laughs> so you were jonesing for it is fair to say you know this has been true of i think all of zahn's stories for well maybe not all of them because there's that one short story that i just did not care about i always think of it as with the ants but they're not really ants it's that was the... more of a novella than a short story sure the Whatever short story you that you like was hammer tongue yeah but i think of the other one more okay anyway with most of his books let's say if it's part of a series, I'm like really eager to see where things go next, at least the first time through. Like, I think he does have a way of establishing interesting plots and like hinting at interesting future things that could happen. And like, I always want to know what happens. But on the other hand, I wasn't like thrilled with Spectre of the Past because I felt like it set up way too much stuff and even knowing how long Vision of the Future was, I was like not convinced that the time in that book was going to be spent appropriately, in my opinion, basically. like Yeah, there's at least two plot lines we identified that you could easily cut and nothing would change. Yeah. So, 
It was mixed. Um, I looked forward to reading these two books for so long, and I I feel like I just couldn't quite let go of that excitement to some extent. But, you know, these things happen. <laughs> so how many times have you read this one, and were you looking forward to rereading it? Several. The, given the length and where it came out in the publisher cycle, I haven't reread this as much as the original Thrawn trilogy or the X-Wing books. And also, just frankly, while I like this book and series a lot, they're just not as instantly and easily rereadable say the way the x-wing books are yeah like i can pick up rogue squadron in an afternoon and have a great time if i want to reread these i have to be in a slightly different mindset yeah but i still really like this book i still like the series i don't think it's on best work but it is so different from the thrawn trilogy and so different from so much of the eu at this point that i really do love it and we saw a little bit of Spectre in the past, but in this book especially, he finds a way to tie in or reference just about every single EU book written previously, which is... Even the ones that were like, that's okay, you didn't have to. Play of Twilight is what you're thinking of. We didn't have to talk about that. Yeah. But don't worry, we're going to talk about it a lot in this one. Basically, the only ones that are not referenced are the books that are not out yet. So like... Starfighters of Audumar, the last book published by Phantom Spectre, or sorry, the last novel, that can't be referenced because it didn't exist yet. But some of Olsen's, uh, and I think in general, Wraith Squadron, because those all came out, or at least the first one came out between these two books, isn't referenced. But the rogues certainly are referenced pretty heavily. Yeah. There are references to the Han Solo trilogy, which actually saw Inspector of the Past. There are references to Shadows of the Empire. There's just, there's references to the Black Fleet Crisis, New Rebellion. Just kind of everything. Yep. And the universe world lover of me of Star Wars really enjoys that kind of thing. <laughs> Fair enough. So what does the cover look like? You know, we've never talked about this before, but the copies that you have, do you think they're the only covers in English? Or did these come out in hard copy first and then paperback? There's actually a funny story. I think I've even mentioned this on the podcast. I bought, so not every Star Wars book came out in hardcover back in the day, but a lot of them did, and I'm 99% sure these did as well. When I was in, oh, fourth grade, fifth grade, somewhere around then, so 10-ish, 11-ish, I actually donated a lot of books to my school library, uh, and that included at the time all my Star Wars books. I had read them all, many of them multiple times, and I was like, I will probably never read them again. Instant regrets. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how long it took, but very, very quickly, I was like, but I want my books back. And my parents, they had a deal with me where I could, for new books I had never read, they would split the cost of a book with me because they really wanted to encourage me to read. But they also didn't want me to just, you know, be buying 100 books a month on their dime. But, like, where were you getting your half of the money? Allowance. Okay. I had a small allowance. So, so really, like, they were paying Yeah, it's, it still money. was, but... But with a limitation on right. them, I suppose. But because I had read these books already... They were like, no. They weren't going to split the cost. So I had to buy all these back on my own dime. Um, so it took a little while for young me to do that. So I think I had a hardcover copy of this that's now at my grade school library. I just... Every and, time you've told me the story, I'm like, what on earth were you thinking? I wasn't. It just... You, you hang on to everything. Like... I learned that lesson. I don't want to get rid of stuff. a borderline hoarder. (laughs) 
And I learned my lesson. I don't want to give my books away, so I slowly bought them back. The books are fine, but like we could get rid of some other stuff. I'm feeling judged right now. You are being judged. <laughs> I don't know. I was just curious if, because so often these days a book will come out in hard copy first, mm-hmm. and then maybe later it will get a paperback version or a re-release or something. I'm pretty sure the copyright in the front said hardcover was in 98 and the paperback was after it. Interesting. Yeah, hardcover, 98, mass market, paperback, 99. Yeah, so if you look at my Star Wars shelf, you'll see a section of Star Wars books where it's only paperbacks. And that's essentially the Bantam Sector era, and that's where <laughs> those were all the ones I donated to my school. Oh, yeah. That's then funny. when you get beyond that into the Jedi Order, you start seeing hardcover again, because those are the ones I was like, I'm keeping these, I'm not giving them away. It's funny because I think of this era looks so nice and neat to me on the bookshelf because they are all the same size. I thought you liked books looking not nice and neat. Though. They are all, but they're the mass market paperback size from that era, which I like. I okay. don't, I don't like to some of, have we talked about this on the podcast? I don't think so. Some books that are released today. The taller ones? The tall. I do not like these tall paperbacks. <laughs> they, and they have like weird margins. I don't know. I have a, clearly a particular aesthetic. It's, it's it where we grew books. up with books. It makes yeah, sense. Yeah. I will say this with the tall paperbacks. One thing I appreciate is I can fit more on my bookshelf. That's fair, and that might be the reason that they went in that direction. More likely, it's probably like a, it's a cost-saving measure somehow. Yeah. Like maybe they have to do fewer pages if the pages themselves are just a little bit dimensionally taller, and they're also not as not as wide. I think. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Because they more on the page. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't. I don't like these tall paperbacks. Anyway, talking about this cover. <laughs> We have just the fluffiest haired Han who's in New Hope costuming because the, the deep uh, you v can neck. tell just from the deep V in that white shirt aiming a blaster at the viewer. He's in the center for some reason, which is interesting. <laughs> Luke is to his, his right, our left, holding a blaster. It is specifically Leia's blaster from A New Hope that she uses when she shoots that stormtrooper. Interesting. He also looks extraordinarily young for somebody who's in their mid thirties or even late thirties by now. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Mara is to Han's left, our right. She's wearing just like full, just very green Jedi-ish outfitting. Don't you think? It kind of reminds me a little bit of what Anakin wears in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, the style, not the coloring. Like yeah. it's not a traditional Jedi robe, which Anakin's obviously is very different. In but it's Sith. like it's the long tunic and the like leggings or trousers right. or whatever, and it's belted at the waist. And she has little like pauldrons on her shoulders, which are very cool. It's like I said, it feels very. It feels like uh, what he wears, but different color. She has very big red hair that is also in a braid, and she's holding, I mean, her lightsaber slash Luke's lights original lightsaber. It's very pale, but it's like slightly blue, so lightsabers on these covers, they always taper to this this like point. point. Really it's interesting. It's kind of like the Rebels lightsabers a little bit. Yeah, and like it's so different from how lightsabers look in in new Star Wars stuff now. Like they have a very and I hate it. 
I hate it so much. They have a very defined core and the the end looks very rounded like the prop does. It makes me crazy. I think it looks so bad. Anyway, Flim is in the background just is it Flim or is it Fron? I mean, it's got to be Flim. It's funny to me cuz I I feel like they're they're doing the glowing red eyes and yet to me these do not look like Thrawn's eyes at all. They look like when um you take a picture of a cat at night <laughs> and you get the like flashback um in their pupils. It just looks like that. It doesn't it doesn't look like how Thrawn is portrayed, you know, in art and on covers and in animation and live action today where his eyes are like entirely red. But I don't know if that's just uh, like how the design was described at this time, maybe. He's got a lot of eyebrow hair. <laughs> and very dense lower lashes also. <laughs> and some crinkles. Some skin crinkles. The Millennium Falcon's on the back cover. Ready? You don't have any other commentary on this cover? <laughs> have I said it all? I think so. Yeah. It's a strange cover. I don't know. I don't know why Luke's holding Leia's blaster. Yeah, that's weird. I, I just sometimes I feel like the artist from this time did not get like much of a brief at all about what to do. Like I, Han and Mara b- both work for me on the cover. You know, Han shooting something, Mara with a lightsaber, but Luke with Leia's blaster from episode four is kind of random. Yeah. The Chimera is still at Pesatine. All damage from the power attack has been repaired. They are in a complete communications blackout, and Captain Ardiff doesn't like it. It makes him feel blind and deaf, and Paleon agrees. He will give Bella Bliss two more weeks to show up before they leave. Ardiff says that Paleon really thinks that this is their best hope, and Paleon says no. This is their only hope. Tyrus has brought Disra out to see Flim in action at Kroktar. They are deep in New Republic territory, and Disra doesn't like it. If something happens and Tears has to give Thrawn advice in a battle, the whole thing will blow up in their faces. He thinks that Flim has the tactical genius of a garbage pit parasite. <laughs> Before this all started, that's probably true, but he's starting to pick up a few things. Yeah. Lord Superior Bosmihi, chief of the Unified Factions, calls them and greets Thrawn and congratulates him on his return. He says there is no longer any order emanating from Coruscant and asks, what guarantee of safety does Thrawn offer member systems of the Empire? Thrawn gives his personal promise of vengeance at, should anyone dare attack them. Hosmihi petitions Kroktar to be readmitted into the Empire, and Dishra is shocked. Thrawn accepts it and then says that Moff Dishra will handle the negotiations on his behalf. Tyr says there are 20 more systems who want to talk with Thrawn as well. Dishra gets a call from a private encryption designated USK-51. He has it transferred to a private conference room, and there, Zothip appears. Disra is furious to be called here. Zothip isn't happy either, and says he lost a battlecruiser and 800 good men. Disra says he warned Zothip not to engage Paleon, just make him think Bella Bliss was attacking. Disra then tells Zothip to never call him this way again. It's a good encryption, but it could be broken. Chekhov's encryption. After, Tyr says that Disra could have been less harsh. The pirates could make dangerous enemies. Disra says Zothip makes too much money to turn on them. Disra says that Tyr goes too far. The plan was for Flim to get the military solidly in line with them, not provoke the New Republic. He then draws a blaster, but Tyr quickly has him on the ground and says that was foolish. My note about this whole scene was 
Disra, fed up with surprises, tries to attack Tierce and does a bad job. Yeah, that shocks. <laughs> I mean, he's a moth. He's he's a pencil pusher. He does he's not a combat in any way. And I mean, presumably at one time the moths were military. That's it, that's what I always thought. Maybe because I associate the moths with Tarkin, and he was military. That's fair. But Tears is a you know former Palpatine bodyguard. He is the among the best of the best for soldiers of the Empire. So he claims. Disra wants to know what Tears is really up to. He relents and asks if Disra has ever heard of the Hand of Thrawn. Disra hasn't, and he's read everything there is to know about Thrawn. Tears says he was looking for information about it at Yaga Minor, but didn't find it. No copy of it is in Imperial Records, and it doesn't exist according to the Empire. They really need Wikipedia. Yeah, but they don't have cloud storage for their data. And this isn't the dial-up era. It is really funny... Just to think about how in this universe, like they put all of their allocation into space flight, like all of their resources went into being able to fly in space. And otherwise, there's such an analog culture like the Death Star plans are on a tape yeah. at one particular location. It's just it's just funny, like no cloud storage. Imagine. <laughs> Disra asks what makes Tears think it even does exist. Tears says he heard Thrawn mention it once on the Chimera in the context of the Empire's ultimate and total victory. Disra asks if it's another Death Star or Sun Crusher, and Tears doesn't know, but he doubts it. Super weapons were more Palpatine and Vader's thing, not Thrawn's. Tears asks if Disra knows who Park and Nerez are. Disra says Park is the one who found Thrawn and brought him to Palpatine. Nerez was captain of the Star Destroyer at Monitor and went with Thrawn on his supposed mapping trip to the Unknown Regions. So he knows about Thrawn. He knows so much about Thrawn. But he says that Thrawn was really exiled there for failing at Imperial court politics. Tyrus says that was the consensus among the Royal Guards, too. Neither Park nor Nerez ever returned to active duty, even when Thrawn did. Maybe they stayed to guard over the Hand of Thrawn somewhere in the Unknown Regions. Palpatine had a hand, so this could also be a person or maybe a master strategy. Disra asks if there's anything in Thrawn's five-year campaign against the Republic that could be the hand, and Tyrus says no. Disra realizes that Tyrus is trying to draw the hand of Thrawn or the people guarding it out by showing their decoy around. What a plan. Not a bad plan. Yeah. Tyrus is clearly the brains of this operation. <laughs> Even though Disra's the one who started it. Yeah, well... Ideas aren't worth anything if you can't execute them. And Tyrus is a good executioner. Yep. <laughs> the Star Destroyers have been behind the Comet for a month now, completely blind and deaf. This is in the Bothawi system. Yes. Scout ships come in and say there are currently 56 warships around Bothawi, and the Star Destroyers will wait until the fight breaks out. They'll let the Rebel forces fight each other and then destroy the rest and the planet. The Comet will be closest to the planet in another month, and Captain Nalgol suspects the battle will happen then. Because he's like, Thrawn has his planned the exact day. He's that good. Yep. Mara disappeared nearly two weeks ago as Luke arrives in system in the Jade's Fire. The ship is Mara's most prized possession. Luke knows he needs to take care of it. He'll hide it with some asteroids and fly his X-Wing to the planet to keep the Jade's Fire safe. He reaches out with the Force, but gets nothing. Luke decides to take the same route that Mara did and heads for the cave. But before he even gets to the planet, two ships fly out to meet him. They look like the one that Luke saw before, 
They are a combination of alien manufacturing melded with the TIE design. In the Force, Luke senses three beings on each ship. So it's larger than a fighter, but still not, like, huge. Yeah. He tries calling them, and they answer in an alien language. He does recognize Thrawn's full name in what they say, and knows this is the same transmission that the errant venture heard. Luke replies in basic, and they speak basic back to him. They tell him to follow them down to the planet. If he deviates from their course, he will be destroyed. Luke follows for a while, then his danger sense kicks in. Six minutes from the fortress, the fighters attack. Luke evades the attacks, but doesn't fight back. He doesn't want to kill before knowing who and what they are. He dives into the canyon Mara flew through and spots a place to land out of sight of the fighters. He is about a day or two away from where Mara disappeared. He camouflages the ship and heads off with one of the two survival packs that Card supplied him with. After he and R2 have been traveling for a while, Luke hears a faint voice. He sees a winged creature watching them, and it asks who they are. But it doesn't speak out loud. It speaks into Luke's head. Luke introduces himself as a Jedi, and the creature asks what Luke is doing here. Luke says he's looking for a friend. The creature asks Luke if she's a Jedi Knight, too, and Luke says, eh, sort of. So do you remember what you thought at this moment? Because Mara couldn't understand these creatures at all, or very little. She kind of like just got glimpses of their words. Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea what was going on once this one could just talk to Luke? I just assumed that Luke is more powerful in the Force. Which is essentially the, yeah. That is essentially the answer. I said it so reluctantly because, like, I don't know, Skywalkers. I mean, I, I, I think it's less powerful and more attuned to the Force. Might be a better way of putting it. Sure. He has better control in the force i think than she does she doesn't practice very much no. <laughs> luke asks if he knows where she is but the creature says it knows nothing luke knows it's lying but then another voice tells him to leave the young one alone and another creature shows up and introduces himself as the hunter of winds he bargains for the testing of the Komke. are we pronouncing that right we have no idea <laughs> hunter of winds says what happens elsewhere is not their concern and tells luke to go to them if he wishes Luke asks for a guide, but Hunter of Winds declines. Luke looks back to find that his X-Wing is gone, but he knows that he has to keep going. The young Komke returns and says there are better ways to the Komjaw. He says he'll help them and tells Luke he's too young to have a name yet. Hunter of Winds is his father, so Luke calls him Child of Winds. Bella Bliss wants to be stationed at Bothaway because, well, you know, there's about to be a fight there, he can tell. Yeah, there's a bunch of ships gathering there. Akbar says no. It would be construed as New Republic support for the Bothans. Bilbilis says they would be a voice of calm and reason. And Akbar agrees, but the Senate and High Council have the authority to decide who will be there, and they say no for now. But Gaverson does have orders for Bilbilis. He's to go to Ord Tracy. He's to assemble a force for an info raid on Yaga Minor. Bilbilis says it's the most heavily defended system in Imperial or New Republic space. Akbar isn't a fan of this plan either. Akbar will be redirecting ships to Bella Bliss over the next two weeks. He wants a plan from Bella Bliss for the assault by then. Bella Bliss will be provided with any specialized equipment that he asks for. After, Bella Bliss tells Wedge that he's not technically part of the task force. Wedge is attached to Bella Bliss himself, not Bella Bliss's task force. Okay. <laughs> Bella Bliss fears vengeance will go after Bothawi's planetary shield generators to mirror what happened at Kamas, so he wants Wedge to make sure that doesn't happen. Wedge and Corrin will go down to the planet to make sure that doesn't happen, but they have to rejoin the task force before the assault. This is one of the storylines that I hate to say this that could have been cut. Yeah. I love Wedge and Corrin so much. 
And I appreciate Zahn wanting to bring in, like, trying to bring in characters that are not his and having them do stuff. And I do think they do interesting things, but this ultimately wasn't needed for the story. Yeah. But we'll get to why later. Next month. Wedge and Corrin watch Bella Blitz's task force leave as they head for the planet. Corrin was chosen because his father-in-law is a smuggler and he may be able to get inside information out of Booster. But Corrin says Booster is currently not speaking to him. He's still mad about Corrin getting one Booster ships impounded. So we didn't really think this through. Even though the ship was released, it is now banned from Sif Creek. They talk for a bit and Wedge says that he tried at being out of the cockpit, but he just didn't like it. So he's back to flying even though he's a general. Which is... Zahn's way of getting of saying why Wedge is an X-Wing even though he's not been for a while. I just don't the New Republic must be really loosey-goosey. I just don't see how Wedge is getting away with this. Well I think even like back in the Wraith series eventually he's not a general but while he's in the X-Wing he's in command of like four squadrons at once. So something along those lines where it's not just the rogues he's in charge of. Eh, I just don't buy it. Corrin has a Jedi hunch that they'll find help on the planet. That's convenient. Meanwhile the wild card enters an asteroid field. Shada notes that Card is nervous, which is concerning given that this is only the first leg of the trip. BPO is not happy to be in an asteroid <laughs> field again. Shada feels sympathy for the droid for how it was just handed off to them. Did you feel sympathy? No, I was so suspicious of 3PO at this point in the story. Because he gets totally, like, wrecked during that riot on Bothawi mm. and put back together. And then there's a line... I think it's in uh, towards the end of Spectre of the Past that mentions that 3PO has been uncharacteristically quiet since he was reassembled. And so I became deeply suspicious of 3PO for the rest of the story, which spoiler <laughs> you didn't tell me this. I, spoiler, nothing is wrong with 3PO. He's he doesn't betray them. Zon just to shut up a little bit. <laughs> I guess Zon was like I don't like these kids and I don't like this droid. He's going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> they get through the f- asteroid field and receive a transmission from the Urwathat spaceport, but it's not in basic. 3PO says it's the dominant Jorelian Dr- dialect and th- says they are being asked for the- their identity and cargo. So Card gives 3PO a message and asks him to reply in a different Jorelian dialect and say this is the Habcamber and they are here to buy supplies and power. They don't like 3PO's response and reply in basic, asking for their identity and cargo. Card tells Shada the plan. They'll go to a tap cafe called the Thruster Burn. Wow. What a name. There they will meet a Corellian crime lord named Krev Bombasa. They need his permission to travel through the next area. They are following Mara's report from seven years ago, and so far it has been very accurate. Once they leave the planet, Card and Shada agree to each tell each other half of their story. So for Bombasa, we watched with your dad, his wife, a year or so ago, Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. How well do you remember that movie? I mean, well enough. Do you remember the the Russian crime lord that Bond talks to who's kind of yeah. like frenemy? Yeah. That's kind of why I picture from Bombasa. Well, that's a long way from who I pictured as Bombasa. <laughs> picture? I think you, you'll remember once I start to say it, but Bombasa is so close to Barbosa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that I started, you know, just picturing the octopus version of Barbosa. Wait, sorry. Barbosa was human. I always get them confused. Okay. The- <laughs> Davy Jones. Okay, so I don't know why I get these two characters confused, but Davy Jones, octopus face, plus Barbosa. So kind of like 
Barbosa's facial features, but with the octopus face. That's wild. I know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't have control over what goes on in my brain. That's fair. I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> There's a swoop gang blocking their entrance to the tap cafe. Card says he is business with Crib Bombasa and just keeps walking by them. But they stop him, and Card says Lord Bombasa will be displeased if he and Shada are not allowed in. When they don't move, Shada quickly takes out one of them. The others circle her as Card backs away. Some cops come up, and Card says they arrived just in time. But they say she started it. Plus, blustering your way to Bombasa is a crime in these parts. Card hopes Shada is as good as she claims. She quickly takes care of two more of them. During the fight, Card grabs the tangle gun from the cop and uses it on the last one. And the cop's like, cute trick. <laughs> then they hear Bombasa's voice and it asks what they want. And Card says to see him and hopefully to collect on an old debt. So they're invited in. And Card says they have an errand to run in Bombasa's territory and would like safe passage through it. And Bobasa says that will cost a lot. And Card says he made a mistake. But he had assumed that when someone saved Bobasa's life, he would be more grateful. And Bobasa's like, dude, what are you talking about? I've never seen him before in my life. Card says several years ago, a dapper gentleman and a young lady with red gold hair foiled an assassination plot against Bobasa. And Bobasa laughs. He'll provide Card with the necessary ID overlay. It will protect Card from his forces. But he does warn him there's a new pirate gang in the area and it will not work against them. Bombasa asks for Card's name, and he gives it. After they leave, Shada asks why Card gave his name. Card figures that Cardas will hear about what happened. Now he'll know that Card is coming. If they appear suddenly, Cardas would likely kill them before they could talk. If he knows they're coming, he may listen before he shoots. Shada asks what he did to Cardas. Card says he stole something, and Cardas probably valued it more than his own life. And that's half of the story he's giving. So he asks why she left Mazak. She says a bodyguard who is a target isn't much good to anyone else. And that's all she'll say for now. Ruddy Mysterious. Han and Leia have been at Packwick Major for half a day. And Leia is already feeling better. This is just a nice vacation. Getting away from Coruscant where things are going to hell. They are getting the royal welcome. And Han doesn't love this aspect of it so much. Too much pomp and circumstance for him. But they'll head to Packwick Minor the next day. And Han is very much looking forward to that. Sabman tells Carib that Leia is on Packreek Major and the attack on her is on. Carib says the quiet existence of Imperial Sleeper Cell Genth 44 is about to end. They are the backup in case something goes wrong. Someone else will be the primary attacker. Meanwhile, Paleon is in an ATAT simulator. He's trying to distract himself from the lack of New Republic response. Scouts were sent out and have returned with news. They went back to the holonet relay at Horska to look at transmission records right after the attack. And they discovered that a transmission was sent to Bastion at about that time, but it was rerouted to Kroktar. The scouts also got a copy of the Tri-Nebulon for that day, and it says that Kroktar has rejoined the Empire and Thrawn has returned. Palian says that's impossible, but the scout says that's what the report says, and Palian shouts, I watched him die! So dramatic. Captain Ardiff says it must be some kind of trick. Later, Paleon asks, what if Thrawn really is alive? What could he possibly do now but bring the New Republic down on them in a panic? Ardiff isn't sure, but that's not what's really bothering Paleon. Paleon says Thrawn chose him and the Chimera, and if he's back, he's chosen someone else. Paleon feels unworthy and thinks it's because of the peace treaty that he's pushing for. Weirdly feel bad for Paleon right now. <laughs> Thrawn was an alien with alien thoughts. Perhaps Palin was just another tool to him. For now, they'll stay here for ten more days and then head to Bastion. 
Distra has some explaining to do. Paleontesi hopes that's not a trick. Thrawn coming back would, re- would revitalize the Empire in a way that he never could. His own pride is not worth that. And again, this is one of the reasons why I start liking Paleon, because one, I feel bad for him, but also like, it's like, this is, ex- even though it's bad for me personally, it's good for what I believe in. And it's, there are very few people, I feel like, and characters who are willing to actually say that and believe it. He's one of them. I don't know. On the one hand, sure. But on the other hand, the thing that he believes in is the Empire. I know. So, like... Still a Nazi, I know. Like, amazing. You're able to set aside your pride because no other Imperial can do that. But, like, it's still for the glory of the Empire, so... Navit has managed to get onto Bothawi undercover as a pet shop owner. So, he left the planet at some point and has come back. Yep. Because he was here for the riots. Yep. When Customs asks why he's here, he says this is the perfect place for him. There's lots of tension in the world. People would love a pet right now to help them feel better. And you know what? He's right. Yeah. Yep. We saw that play out. (laughs) How many people got dogs during the pandemic? So hard to get Kyber. So many. Mara has been in the cave for 15 days, and she awakens to not what she expected. She feels Luke approaching her in the Force. She tells the creatures that Skywalker's coming, and she can tell they are pleased. She quickly... Makes herself look presentable. Like, there's a little, I think, like, stream near her. She, like, goes on, like, it washes her face. Like, I'm going to look good for Luke coming here for my boo. I don't think it's that. No. I think it's there's, just... I think there's pride here. It's like, I need to look good when someone sees me. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm not going to let him get the vibe that I've been, like, struggling here for two weeks. Like, I'm going to look like... Like my it beautiful has, self. It has been totally fine. I am totally fine. Nothing has. Go- everything is as I have planned it. Like that was the vibe that I got from that. Not that. Yeah. And Luke's of course been hiking for a couple of days, and he arrives and says she looks good, and she says you look terrible because yeah. Luke looks like a mess right now. She had to prepare herself. He's been going through the brush and God knows what else. <laughs> I just imagine. I imagine him looking like an older version of the sweaty Luke from. Uh, Dagobah, like when he's yeah. training, like yeah, he always just it. kind of has swamp stuff on him. Tim's have swamp, but probably more, I think. Like dirt. His plants. Slime. Yeah. He asks how they've been treating her, and she says ambiguously. She's kind of a prisoner. She can move around, but not very far. They also have her lightsaber and blaster, though she does have a tiny backup blaster hidden away still. Luke says they were keeping her safe, and she feels some embarrassment over all this, and Luke says, don't worry about it. And Mara says, blast it, Skywalker. Stay out of my mind. Because she didn't tell him she was feeling embarrassed. She just thinks that and feels that. Yeah. And he's like, let me get up in there. Luke apologizes for the intrusion. He says the creatures have been protecting her from the Threateners in the High Tower. They are apparently allied with the Empire. The Comjaw are also not thrilled that Luke has brought a young Comke with him. The Bargainer then arrives. Mara wishes she could understand them. Luke says to take his hand, but it doesn't work. So he then puts an arm around her waist and touches their heads together, and Mara can hear them now. Wow. Zod, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna expire. It's too embarrassing. There's too much secondhand cringe happening to me right now. It's such a Luke thing to do. He's like, this doesn't work. Let's get closer! (laughs) And Mara's like, why? I actually don't remember what she was thinking in this moment, but I can only imagine it was like, she's like a cat who's like, ugh, get me out. <laughs> but also, like, it does work, so part of her is almost relieved she can hear them now. Yeah. 
The bargainer of the Komaja is named Eater of Fire Creepers. We'll find out why later. He asks if she is the same Jaded of Mara who once flew with the Empire. Apparently those in the High Tower have spoken of her. She says if they are talking about her, it's because she's near the top of their list of enemies. Eater of Fire Creepers says that the Komke were supposed to warn the New Republic years ago about this place. The child says Hunter of Winds decided against it because it wasn't safe. A Komke would have had to hide on a ship and go on a long, dark journey in order to warn the New Republic. And who knows if it would even get there, because the ships aren't exactly in New Republic space. Yeah. Mara asks if the Komja are worthy of their help. Eater of Fire Creepers says they fear the Threateners and want them gone. Mara asks how can they prove they deserve their help. They ask her what proof she needs. Mara says they need access to the High Tower and possibly some sort of interference. Child of Winds asks Luke what will happen to him now, and Luke says they'll make sure he can get home. But he says he can't go home. He went against the bargainer. He won't be allowed back to the nesting. And the child asks to go with them to the high tower. If he sees the threateners in person, he'll understand them better and be more likely to persuade the other Komke to help. Luke says he can come if he obeys them without question. The Komja will send three guides with them, Splitter of Stones, Keeper of Promises, and Builder with Vines. It will take several days to get there. Mara's weapons are returned to her. Luke takes back all the doubts he had and says Mara was brilliant. He says they can leave when she's ready, and she says, well, let's go now. Luke's like, yeah, you want to take some time? You've been kind of trapped here for a while. She's like, no, we can go. Nothing will not wait for me. She asks if he needs to get back to saving the galaxy, and Luke says no very quickly. Mara then curiously asks, someone step on your foot there? Luke just says he needs to be here, but don't ask him why. They pack up and head out. Mysterious. So mysterious. Han and Leia are alone. They don't even have the Nogri with them. The Falcon is using a fake ID on their way to Pack Creek Minor, when suddenly they're attacked. Leia manages to warn Han just in time. He says the attackers are good. They waited until they were too close to the planet, jumped to light speed, and are jamming their communications. Leia flies while Han mains the guns and manages to shoot one down, but the Falcon has taken some damage. Han asks if Leia knows how to do a smuggler's reverse. She does, but she also doesn't think it will work. Han says do it, but keep spinning until they are pointed back at the planet. Then a few seconds later, do a real smuggler's reverse. Leia does it, and it works. One of the ships flies straight past them, and Han shoots it down. But the other slams into the Falcon. I always have a visual for this in Firefly. I think it was in the pilot when Serenity does that reverse spin to get away from the Reavers. Mm. You know, remember the scene I'm talking about? I don't. Okay. It's been too long. That's kind of what I picture here. I think Wash goes, here's something you can't do or something like that. Han gets back to the cockpit and Leia has a cut on her forehead, but is otherwise okay. The engines are down and Han goes to try to fix them, but the planet just keeps getting bigger in the cockpit view. Leia checks the escape pods. They aren't working either and their comms are down too. So the ship that hit them did a lot of damage. Leia then spots some other ships and feels elation for a moment, but then realizes it's a TIE interceptor. How worried were you? I wasn't... I was like, they can't possibly make the situation worse at this point. Like, they're already going to crash. Whatever. There are... Also, they have plot armor. (laughs) There are multiple interceptors, and they don't do anything at first. Then they fire grappling mags at the Falcon and start towing the ship, stopping it from crashing into the planet. Leia feels something weird about the pilots. Did you know what that was? Yeah. Okay. So you, had you figured out who the pilots were? Yeah, they were Carib and, like, his folk. Okay, so you knew what they were. I had a suspicion. Okay. 
as soon as Leia was like, the pilots feel weird. Then you knew? I was like, oh, I bet Carabinus people are all clones. Okay. <laughs> because I assumed that they were the ones saving them. I was like, there's no one else on Pakreek Major or Minor who appears to be Imperial aligned, but seemed reluctant to actually do Imperial things. So, I, yeah, I put those pieces together, I suppose. The interceptors land the Falcon on the planet, and Han and Leia get off, and there are ten people waiting for them. And Han thinks this is probably one of Thrawn's hidden sleeper cells. Sabin Devist welcomes them to Imperial Sleeper Cell Genth 44. Carib walks over, and Leia realizes they are clones. But here's the bombshell. Yeah, this was... Han looks at them, and he's like, I know who you are! They're clones of Baron Soontir Fell. Why? <laughs> A name we've heard so many times. But we've never met him. Not in the books, at least. Yeah. So he's been referenced pretty heavily. So I think this was Alston in the Wraith Squadron books was connecting to the series pretty well, is why he had the actor fake who him being fell. And I think also at some point Stackpole mentions him as well. Maybe he was mentioned in I Jedi. Isn't he in Zahn's novella about the ant queens? Was he? He might have been. So yeah, you're right. He was in Crisis of Faith so funny i don't remember literally anything else about that story i just remember being like god this guy carob says they don't want to hurt hot or leia and they don't want to fight for thrawn or the empire either they just want to be left alone apparently one thing that fell loved more than personal glory or galactic stability was soil and so do they they are dirt farmers and bloody love it i don't think they're dirt no they're farmers. not dirt. they're farmers yes i love the just... soil don't disturb the dirt <laughs> it's not much but it's honest work <laughs> This is their life. Politics, war, and flying are all behind them now. And Leia reaches up with the Force and believes what they're telling her. I just don't understand what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre, don't you think? It is, but there is something that will be said later in this book that actually makes this make perfect sense. Yeah. I just mean, like, I feel like Zahn did too much. To pull together all of the disparate threads of the Bantam Spectra era. You know? There are some things that I feel like, this is just a bridge too far. Fair, but this one is, this is one of his, I feel like. Well, his and Stackpole's. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's worth talking about. No offense. Zahn slash Baron suit here fell. But, you know, like, I think it would have been fine to wrap this up in a way that takes less page time. Yeah, but they are important to the story, both soon and towards the end. I know, but you could always write it different. You could, but there are certain stories that you could cut. This is one I wouldn't cut personally. All right. One of the reasons that I would be okay with cutting this part is just because I cannot deal with the way the vast majority of people interact with these clones. Fair. It's like later in the book, Lando especially, it just really puts my hackles up. But I also think it, strangely enough, matches up really well with what happened in the prequel trilogy. Yeah. Unintentionally, because... Yeah, because they had no idea. And it does match up with, like, Zahn's previous light exploration of clones. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that in this one, he tried to, like, walk back some of the stuff he did in the Thrawn trilogy that icked me out so bad. Like, it's clear that by this time... He, like, the narrator thinks the clones are people. They deserve to have lives like people, even though a bunch of people around them do not agree with that. But um, 
I don't know, just some uncomfy conversations. There are later. Han decides to cut a deal. The only way for none of them to have to fight is to solve the Kamas issue and find out who was involved. Han asks them to take him to Bastion. And Kerb's like, even I don't know where that is. <laughs> the No Grease ship approaches. They are happy to see Han and Leia alive. They also bring Leia a message from Bellibliss. It says he'll be here in three days to meet with her. They're also very unhappy, weird about the clones, right? I feel like they, more than anyone else, have a legitimate reason to, given that they've worked so closely with Thrawn and the clones ten years ago. Yeah, fine. So, even though Carob doesn't know how to get to Bastion, Han and him kind of figure out a plan of a way to figure out where Bastion is. They're not going to tell us about it right now. Nope, we get to show, don't tell. We get to see it in a bit. <laughs> what? We've already told and not shown the one thing that matters in this duology, in my opinion. But, you know, Flim, Flim being Thrawn. I know. Don't give me that smug, smarmy look like you don't know what I'm talking about. (sighs) Leia doesn't want Han to go and tries to give him some otherwise because Bastion is very dangerous. Bad news. Bad news bears. But Han does convince her. And he also says he'll get Lando to come with him because he has an idea of how to do this. However, he won't leave until the next day, giving them one night together. Which, all that's sweet. And sad. Yeah. I don't like how everyone has written Hanalei in the EU, but Zahn is one of the authors who I think gets them very well. Yeah, consistently. Han calls Lando and asks if he wants to go on a dangerous trip. Lando doesn't really want to, but Han guilts him into it by saying Card is out there risking his neck on Lando's insistence. He also asks for Lobot and the Verpine he worked with, Mogrid, to come too. Through code, Han makes it clear they are going to Bastion. And I think at this, in this conversation, Lando even mentions Tendra, which is the connection back to the Krillian trilogy that we just read. Yeah, and like, kind of waffling on what message to leave for her about why he's going, um, because he doesn't have time to like, wait for her. Rolly has a bug planted in Lando's office. She is hunting Shada and had tracked her to Coruscant, but Shada left in the wild card, so Crowley played a hunch given the connection between Lando and Card, and she thinks that hunch just paid off. Solo was very careful in what he said, but the oblique reference to Card was enough for her, so she'll head for the Lady Luck and hide inside. Oh, Lady, are you wrong? You're going to the wrong place, <laughs> kiddo. So wrong. <laughs> Flim has brought three planets back to the Empire, and is now headed back to Bastion. Impressive work. Eight Corvettes suddenly jump into the system to attack. Thrawn sends out half a squadron of prey birds to intercept. Disra is angry, but Flim says Thrawn used to do this to figure out an opponent's identity. So it should be said, Tears, Disra, and Flim are not on the bridge with everyone else, which is why they can talk like this. Yeah. But this is also like Disra's biggest fear. Yeah. Tears says it gives them some time, at least. He looks the ships up and says they are probably from the corporate sector. Flim asks for suggestions. Disra then says they are Diamala ships. Several months ago, Diamala bought 12 of this particular kind of ship. Zothip was trying to buy the ships, but was outbid. Tyr says it's another test from the Diamala senator, and tells Flim to call the Preybirds back, and then order Captain Dorja to do a Tron Boral maneuver. Flim does so, and then adds in a Marg Sable for good measure afterward. Because Zom loves his Marg Sable. Thrawn had battle plans to deal with the Diamala, Tears and Flynn had been reading them over so they'd know what strategies to use when they were faced with different enemies. The ships turn around before the battle even begins, convinced they are facing Thrawn. And a part of this was like, very like, aha, uh-huh, see so you do me for some fights to identify things. 
But Disra is still not happy about the situation and mentions the Hand of Thrawn. Flim asks what that is because he's never heard about it before. And Tierce tells him Flim is not happy that he's being used as bait. They have a kind of shouting match. And this was intentional on Disra's part because he feels like Tierce and Flim are getting too buddy-buddy without him. So he's like, let me just sprinkle that in there. Drop this grenade. And I think there's a line in the book that says, like, thankfully the room they were in was soundproof because Flim was shouting for a really long time. Because Flim rightfully is like, you know who would probably be able to tell that I'm not Thrawn? Some, the Hand of Thrawn! Some person who was like his like special apprentice or whatever, meant to inherit the throne or whatever. Yeah. I feel bad for him in this moment. <laughs> but it also makes me giggle at him. I mean, I don't feel bad for him. He agreed to this. He's fair. a con artist. Yeah. Never feel bad for a con artist. Yeah, it's fair. It's slow going for Luke and Mara. They need to clear stalactites and stalagmites out of the way. So they each throw their lightsaber to clear the way, but Mara struggles to keep hers going. And Luke resists the temptation, rightfully so, to help, and she eventually cuts her way through what she needs to do. Six hours later, they take a break, and Mara asks him, has it ever occurred to you that every once in a while you could let someone else do all the work? Luke asks if she thinks he does too much, and she says yes. She asks if he disagrees, and he says a year or two ago he would have, but he's not sure today. Child of Winds asks Luke if a Jedi Master can do everything. Luke says no. In fact, sometimes it seems like the job of a Jedi Master is to not do anything. Mara could once hear Palpatine's voice anywhere, and she is not happy that she can't hear their companions, and it's starting to really annoy her that she's only hearing half of the conversation. Luke says a Jedi could hear them, and asks why she never came back to the temple. He's disappointed she didn't return to her training. She says whenever she came to the temple, he basically ignored her and focused on Kip and others. He thought she didn't need or want the special attention. But Luke gives her the attention now, and he starts with her levitating her lightsaber. As has always been the case, she's a quick study. Luke also tells her the Jade's Fire is hidden at the edge of the system. He also brought the beck and call with him and gives it to her. And Mara's like, who gave you... Oh, Card did this. Card did this. Luke wonders if the Hand of Thrawn was a student, someone that Thrawn was grooming to take over someday. As they keep moving forward, both sense danger ahead. There is something hidden in the walls in the holes that they see. So they throw a rock forward and something grabs it out of the air too fast to see exactly what it is. Mara thinks maybe it's a tongue or a tentacle, and the rest of the creature is hidden in the hole. The Comjaw say they hadn't encountered this creature until 30 seasons ago. Mara puts her lit lightsaber forward and it's grabbed, killing the creature. They pull a long, slug-like creature out of the hole. The Comjaw have never seen what it looks like until now. There are 30 more holes, and Luke doesn't want to kill them all. They primarily eat insects, and there are plenty in the cave. So Luke puts the insects in front of the holes until the creatures are satisfied. Luke is happy to not have had to kill them, but Mara asks what he has against insects, and he says they remind him of the Drachas. There's your reference to Planet of Twilight. <laughs> well, and they, they go through this whole pattern of, like, ripping up like the grass and stuff to offer it to the hole the holes as they move around right and at this point mara's like i'll deal with the bugs you do the other thing which is very nice of her yeah they work well together wedge and corn think the target will be the chill generator in the capital city of bothawi basically mirroring what happened at kamas with when the bothans helped sabotage their shield generator so while they are talking and scouting the area a bothan stumbles into them and picks their pockets. When they realize their IDs are missing, they try and find the Bothan, but are unable to. But then an old woman approaches them, 
and asks if they want to join her for a drink. And they're like, no, no, thank you. We've got stuff to do. But then she shows them their wallets and they're like, okay, okay. we'll join you. These two hapless idiots. Like, what did I get? But Corin, come on. Yeah, Corin, I feel like should be a little bit more street smart than this, but maybe he's been off the... He's been in a cockpit too long? Yeah, he's been off the circuit. (laughs) She introduces herself as Miranda Savage. She's here to help the situation. And we actually met her in the first book. Yeah, she was the one with the Nogri on that one world that Luke happened by. Where he saw a card, and there was the light ceremony for people who have uh, been lost. Yeah. So she's here keeping an eye on the shield generators. For now, they agree to pool their resources. Nevek gets a call from Customs. He can go pick up his animals. Cliff tells him the Bothan they hired messed up, though. The Bothan was able to get the two wallets from the two Republic agents, but they were gone by the time he got back to Cliff. All that ever sure is that they are New Republic agents, and probably milita- military based on how they walk and move, just kind of very... Stiff and formal. <laughs> Again, Corin. Come on. Like, I understand Wedge, but Corin should be better at this. But now that there's also someone else, someone they don't know, and they suspect a fringe ally. I should say, when I first read this section, I was really suspicious of Miranda because I did not remember her from Spectre of the Past. Yeah, I had to uh, remind you of that, I remember. Yeah, because, you know, someone else picks their pockets and then she picks that person's pockets and gives them back their wallets. And I was like, this feels like a manipulation. Yeah. It feels like she hired It still could have been, frankly. If not for this conversation, I still would have thought that. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, she just wasn't, she was very briefly Spectre of the Past. It's a long book. There's a lot of characters. There are a lot of characters. This is the sto- one of the few stories in this book and series that I feel like could be dropped. Yeah. But since it is in here, I am glad that we do meet her in the first book. Yeah. It's a very small, almost cameo role, if you will. Yeah. But I, I do think that helps establish who she is in this book. Yeah, it does. If you don't have a totally leaky memory like me. <laughs> there was a lot to keep track of. There was a lot going on. Yeah. Leia is waiting for Bella Bliss, but he doesn't show up. Instead, Elagos Akla does, and he's brought someone to speak with her. Ghent. So, we have mentioned many times how Stackpole and Zahn talked a lot about iJedi and used was a lot of what Zahn was doing in this book was informing what Stackpole was doing in iJedi. It wasn't just Kamas, it was the specific Kamas Elagos who spent so much time with Korin in that book. Yeah, and to, I guess, both Stackpole and Zahn's credit, as soon as I saw the name Elagos, I was like, oh, that was Corrin's, like contact during part of his Eye Jedi situation. And that they tie in, these two, this series and that one book actually tie in a lot better once you've read these books in ways that you don't anticipate. Yeah. Ghent wanted to speak with Bella Bliss, but he apparently can't be reached. And so he figured the president was the next best choice. He apparently didn't remember or didn't know that Leia is currently on a leave of absence, so she's not president. He's very much the absent-minded genius, and he's, yeah. he's a fun character. I've always liked Gantz. Leia asks if Gantz sent the message from Bella Bliss, and he kind of sheepishly says yes, because... So impersonating a high-ranking military official. Cool, cool. He apparently has a data card that must be shown to someone. When Gantz went there, Elgos was waiting at Leia's office to speak to her. And Gent told Elagos that he needs to speak to Leia right away. So Elagos was like, all right, let's go to Leia right now. So Elagos flew Gent out here. Gent shows Leia the data pad. She asks where he got it. Bella Bliss gave it to him after an attack at Morishim, where a Star Destroyer picked up another ship. 
This is the message that Lando pulled during that attack, and Ghent has been able to clean it up so it can be understood. She learns what Paleon wants to do, finally. Dun-dun! Saki Sok, an ogre, doesn't believe it. He says this is an Imperial lie. Elagos reads it and agrees it's probably a trap, but on the slim chance that's not, he thinks it must be explored. And since they can't get to Bubbles right now, Elagos volunteers to go. Leia's like, no, she will go and meet Pelion, but Elagos and Gant can come with her as well. Meanwhile, the wildcard exits hyperspace, and seven ships are waiting for them. Shada is in one of the turbo lasers and fires at them, but she's hit during the fight and taken to the medbay. She spends some time in a bacta tank there. The wildcard is able to fight off the attackers, though. The plan is for Card to go to the planet and meet with General Jutka to discuss the attack. And once Shada's feeling better, she and 3PO accompany him. Jutka calls Card a troublemaker and says they aren't welcome on his world. He does tell them that they were attacked by Rikos, a Rodian, and he doesn't want to end up in the middle of a fight between Bombasa and Rikos. Shada knows about Rikos through reputation. He's very violent and vicious and is also a slaver. Card suspects that Rikos is working for Cardos. There's so many apostrophes in that sentence. Yeah, Rikos has an apostrophe in the middle of it. Cardos has an apostrophe in the middle of it. I'm shocked Bombasa doesn't, frankly. Yeah. I'm also surprised Card doesn't. Yeah. After talking with Jutka, they talk with Entuni, who had been talking with 3PO. 3PO told Entuni that they were looking for the fabled world of Exocron. 3PO, learn to keep a secret. No. Never. Antony says that he can take Card directly to Cardos, but only him. Card is willing to try it, but Shada won't let him go alone. Before Card can convince Shada, others in the bar draw blasters on them and tell them to put their hands on the table. But then, Hisishi enters the bar, surprising them since they've never seen a Togarian before. Remember, the Togarians are giant, cat-like species. Yeah, Khajiit. In the distraction, Shada makes a move and knocks one down. She's about to do more, but Card stops her. Some of his crew were also in the bar, and they drew blasters to the ones pointing blasters at Card. So, the attackers lower their blasters and walk out, threatening Card as they leave. Shada isn't happy about being kept in the dark about the backup. Once in Lightspeed, Card goes to see Shada. She expects some excuse, and she's surprised when Card gives the story of Cardos instead. Keep in mind, this story, as with everything else in this book on the timeline... Assumes a totally different timeline for the prequel era. <laughs> yeah. Just one of the things you cannot make fit. Just pretend. We're in an alternate universe. It's fine. Cardos' story goes back 60 years to the Clone Wars era. He must be so old. Yeah. Like, he's got to be at least 80 or so, right? Yeah. Because he had to have been at least a young man. At the start of the the story. At the start, yeah. I mean, 80 in Star Wars isn't that old, I feel like. Are you kidding me? I feel like we never see old people in Star Wars. Well, I, I remember as the EU goes further along and Han, Luke, and Leia are getting into their 60s and 70s. They talk about how, like, your 60s is the new 40 in Star Wars. <laughs> okay. So, Cardoff's story goes back 60 years to the Clone Wars era. And at the time, there was a great need for smuggling, and Cardoff jumped in and ended up running one of the better organizations. Not the biggest one, but it was a, a good one with a good reputation. After about 15 years, he got caught in the middle of a battle between some Pafashi Dark Jedi, and one of them commandeered Cardoff's ship. There are four other crew members on it, but Cardos was the only one to survive. The ship vanished, but Cardos returned two months later, acting like nothing had happened. But he began pushing to expand his organization. He would move into other territories and absorb or destroy smaller groups. If he continued at this pace, he would soon rival Jabba. Others tried to stop him, but no one could. 
He developed a knack for guessing what people were planning against him, which made him dangerous. I like the idea of him trying to rival Jabba. Like, that's, a, that's a very good point for just people who are, since this is a, a new story, to, we all know Jabba. Like, measure him. Yeah. Measure this Jabba's... crime syndicate against Jabba's. Yeah, it's a good measuring stick. As his organization grew, he became moody and aged rapidly. One day, about 20 years ago, he got in his private ship and just vanished from the known galaxy. He didn't contact his people. If his enemies saw him, they never announced it. At first, no one was worried. He'd vanish before, but always come back. But after three months, people started to wonder if he'd return. His lieutenants talked about splitting it all up, which would have turned bloody. So Card just sort of slipped in and took over. It took planning and luck, but he dealt with the lieutenants and then told everyone it was business as usual. There were eight attempts to topple Card over the next few years. The leaders of four of them said that Cardas was secretly behind them. Ten years ago, Lando showed Card something that Luke found on Dagobah. It was the beck and call for Cardas's personal ship. He had bought it soon after the Dark Jedi incident. Mara tried to track Cardas down, and Lando tagged along. It took years, but they eventually found out where Cardas was, but they never actually saw him in person. Card was going to go see him, but lost his nerve and never did. Now, Cardas seems to be dealing with piracy and slavers, and Card is worried that Cardas is coming after him. Shada says Cardas could just be building a little empire out here, but Card says Cardas never forgot a wrong and lived for the challenge. But Shada should be safe. She's not with Card or in his organization. He doesn't want to be hurt, but if he is, Card hopes and thinks that Shada will be safe, and hopefully Cardas can be persuaded to let her leave and take the Kamas document back to Coruscant. The data library that Cardas built up vanished with him, which is why Card thinks he might have a copy of the Kamas document. This whole thing is so weird. It is, but I really like this backstory. And it gets it's, even weirder later. It does, but it's, I've always really liked this idea of Cardas and like, I like how this is informing so much of who Card is and where he came from. Mm-hmm. And, Which we have never known. Yeah, so I really like getting that insight into his backstory. I also really like Cardas' story. I think it's a really interesting one. The only weird thing about this whole scene to me, though, is that Shada is so offended that she wasn't fully, like, that she was kept in the dark a little bit when they went to the bar. And... I don't know. Characterization-wise, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. I understand that she's looking for a new place to belong, but to me, like, she has bounced off of one place, which was the New Republic, given up on it instantly when they were like, no. And now she wants to be part of Card's organization? Like, I think she's not even sure if she wants to be part of this. It's just she feels like this is something impossibly important to do to find the Kamas documents. Mm -hmm. And I think she's kind of taken upon herself to be Card's bodyguard, and if a bodyguard doesn't know about the backup, that's a uh, that's bad. I guess. I just didn't get like I felt like that could have been clearer. Yeah. But I also like that Card doesn't try and make a weak apology. I like he explains like what he's doing, like why he's keeping her he's purposely separate. keeping her separate. But I I don't know. I kind of think like Card, if you really think Cardos is this dangerous this little technicality is not going to save Shada or the Kamalas document. I just don't believe it. I find it very unlikely, but I'm also like, if this, if he thinks this is the best chance since he did know Cardos back in the day, it's worth a shot. But in that case, I wish he would say that. Like, I wish he would say, I think that this is a shot in the dark. I mean, I thought that was implied in this scene. I didn't feel like it was. Okay. I feel like they're still dancing around it too much. Okay. 
Luke and Mara arrive at their destination. But there is a stone blocking their way, so Luke swings his lightsaber out to cut it. But something happens. The lightsaber hits it, and then sputters and dies on contact, and just Luke and R2 are astonished. And Mara's like, dude, what happened? What's your lightsaber off? And Luke's like, I, I don't know, and he tries again, and the same thing happens. And they look at the rock, and there's a very, very small mark where the lightsaber hit it, but it's essentially intact. And Luke says, this must be Kratosis ore, which Mara has never heard of. Apparently, Luke says, he and Corrin ran into a group of Force users who used it. Again, referring to iJedi, the Genisari. Um, it's very rare and essentially blocks lightsabers. So it's like Beskar. <laughs> Except it's not very... Sh- well, we'll get more into it about the Except in a second. Yeah. Mara says it looks familiar. Palpatine had some around his private residence and a few other places. She never knew what it was called, just what it did. Luke asks if it can be destroyed, and Mara says it's fairly weak, like a grenade would do the trick. It really only blocks lightsabers. Keeper of Promises thinks that's a bad idea. Someone would hear it. So for now, they'll use their lightsabers, and it will just be slow going to get through. One so chip at a time. Like Beskar, and then it can block a lightsaber, but it's not like Beskar, and like it's it's not strong to everything, just this one thing. And yeah, like I got f- the impression that even blasters would... Yeah, do some damage. Yeah. So I, I like the idea of like something that's specific to lightsabers. Just makes you wonder why. Why not? I mean, in a big galaxy, there's going to be one rock that can block a lightsaber. I mean, if you extrapolate that, though, it means that that one rock will block plasma, but not anything else. Yeah. Which is strange. Star Wars is strange. I know. This is not the weirdest, most confusing thing about these books, certainly. After an hour of cutting, so they're going very slow, they cut through it, lightsaber sputters and dies, and apparently it's okay for the lightsaber to this to happen yeah, again Yeah, it and sounds again. bad. But, I, I guess it's just interrupting the circuit yeah. or something. And as long as it's a well-made lightsaber, that's okay. R2 stops them and says that there's a rumbling noise approaching them. Build with the Vine says, the fire creepers are coming. They are small but dangerous and we anything in their path. But anything organic, that is. So R2 closes all openings and Luke and Mara wedge themselves up high in the ceiling. They face each other and hold hands to keep each other aloft. And then soon, a river of fire creepers just passes below them. Mara says this is cozy and symbolic, the great and powerful Jedi Master having to rely on someone else to survive. And Luke replies, I wish you'd drop that. I've already admitted that I can't do everything. Builder with vines decides to show off and eat some of the fire creepers, but ends up getting eaten himself. Oops. Luke tries to help, but is far too late. He grips Mara's hands too hard, and she tells him to ease up. She tries to distract him from what just happened, but he says that he should have stopped Builder with vines. Mara asks how he would have, and by what right he should. Luke says it was his responsibility. Mara says Builder with vines was an adult and made his own choice. If you want to start feeling guilty about mistakes, start with the ones that were actually your fault, Mara says. And Luke says, such as? And she says, not moving the academy off of Yavin when he found out that Exar Kun was there. Good point. Not slapping Kip Durin down when he started going dark. Great point. Not providing adequate protection for his sister's children. Good point. Declaring himself a Jedi Master after less than 10 years on the job. Yep. <laughs> and Luke's like, y- yeah, you're right. She says things haven't gotten like he expected. Being a Jedi has been a lot foggier than he thought it would be. And Luke says, yes, that's it exactly. But suddenly, Mara says, in the last couple of months, things have become clearer. And Luke says, right again, and asks if she knows what's been going on. All right, strap in. She says that it began at Biss, 
Dark Empire reference. And also says she isn't convinced that was really Palpatine there. <laughs> Fair enough. Because he didn't contact her. Mara says that Luke stupidly and arrogantly decided that the best way to stop Palpatine would be to join him. Mm-hmm. Luke says that he didn't really go over, though, or at least he doesn't think that he did. Mara says that it doesn't matter. He willingly dabbled in the dark side, and from that point on, it colored literally everything that Luke did. He wasn't thinking, he was just reacting and trying to save everyone and everything, and he almost destroyed himself as a result. Luke asks what changed, but then he realizes that he made a choice to stop using the Force, and Mara says, you've got it. You finally got it. The Force isn't just about power, it's about guidance. And the more you tap the power, the less you're able to hear its guidance. Mara thinks one of the reasons why Luke's first students struggled was because of the dark side influence that was still on him. And he asks if that's why she didn't stay. She says, yeah, that was part of it. And he also wasn't listening to her concerns. And she didn't want to be there when it all collapsed. (laughs) She's a survivor. Besides, he had Corrin, but pity he didn't stay too long. (laughs) So before we get to the next part, I want to talk about what everything that we just talked about. I cannot believe that Zahn deigned to bring up Dark Empire, because you know he hates it. This is essentially retconning every EU book to this point saying, (laughs) Luke was wrong. I mean, I don't feel terrible about that, because I don't like pretty much anything he's done after Dark Empire, or during Dark Empire, but also just... (laughs) You know, like I, the Jedi it, Academy trilogy, the way he behaved was really bizarre to me. And like, I don't, to me, it doesn't feel as bizarre to me. But again, that's I drew, I've grown up with these books. I've read them so many times. But I also agree that he made mistakes. And I, I like the idea that these mistakes stem from him going dark. I think it makes a lot of sense. And also, of all the books we've read in the 90s EU, post-Dark Empire, what are the ones where you thought Luke had the best characterization? Gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head. It was probably the Corellian Trilogy. Yeah. Which takes place right before this, right before he has this realization of using the Force less, which fits in really nicely with him getting to that point. Yeah. Like, he's still playing the hero, trying to save everyone, but he's getting to the point of, like, real having this realization. So that actually really fits nicely in with this retcon that Zahn has done. Mm. Yeah, on the one hand, I I like this, and I think it fits. And on the other hand, I think it's too simplistic. Fair. I also think it's kind of uh, one thing I don't like about it is it feels like it's condescending to the rest of the authors. Yeah, a little bit. And and I'm I feel certain that Zahn didn't talk to all of them about oh, this. No, I don't think him and Anderson and Hambly were at all chummy. Anderson's actually the one I think he might have talked to because Anderson was still pretty heavily involved with the EU at this point, whereas Hambly wasn't after her two books. Mm. So I feel like he and Anderson may have talked about certain things. Maybe. And I think Anderson would agree that Luke makes mistakes in the Jedi Academy trilogy, but he also might say, you know, you need mistakes from the heroes for the conflict to happen. Yeah, but a lot of Luke's mistakes feel like lessons he should have already learned just because of the original trilogy. Like drawing on too much power and relying on the Force too much to solve your problems. Not going dark side. Being a weapon, etc. Like, it really feels like he should have learned... Like, that's his whole arc in the original trilogy. So it definitely cheapens it afterward when we have Dark Empire. But I still think there's a version of someone who relies on the Force too much, who's not necessarily, like, a Sith, but they need to learn how to, like, draw back from that. 
weirdly enough, I actually think the Crystal Star also matches really well with this. Mm. Because he's using the Force so much, he's using that Force disguise stuff. Yeah. And he's making everybody uncomfortable. Yeah. All so, the time. And like, I know it's completely unintentional from that book, but it also dovetails nicely into this. I feel like this is a lot of Zahn just saying that this is how he thinks the Force should work for somebody who is walking in the light, so to speak. And all of the ways that writers have described Luke using the Force are too kind of like in excess to really match with his view of the Force. I think it also goes back to something you said earlier of how we think Bantam Spectre basically told Zahn, wrap this era up and make everything yeah. kind of fit cohesively. And characterization of frankly everyone you can't make cohesive because some authors do certain characters really well and other characters not so well so i think this is on for at least explain for luke as to why he's been kind of all over the place because of this dark influence and from that perspective of trying to make everything match better i think that's it's not necessarily the best way to do it but i don't know the better way to do it i mean it's the character for whom you have the easiest solution yes that's a good way of putting it like we have seen how the dark side, like whether I like it or not, this is just fact in Star Wars, makes people behave kind of like terribly, not just terribly, but just like they're suddenly different people. And it can suddenly a child murderer. Yeah. Like it's like they have you hear about people who've had traumatic brain injuries and they have a sudden total flip of personality or even just not a traumatic brain injury, but just a traumatic experience. Yeah. But I, I feel like this happens a lot with TBIs where their personality will just abruptly change. Suddenly somebody, I was just reading a thing this morning, and somebody like abruptly became super hyper-religious after their TBI when they had never been before. I think the most famous example is the uh, the guy who had the pipe through his head. Yes. I can't remember his name, though. The railroad spike guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember his name either. Yeah, um, he, he became a different person, essentially. Oh, yeah. A, like, violent and kind of vile person but like it was hardly his fault he had a railroad spike through his brain yeah <laughs> the fact that he survived at that time was crazy um that's what the dark side is a railroad spike through your brain through the brain yep that you brought on yourself for some reason you know so that part i can sort of make peace with the next part is harder for me agree that's why i want to split this into two parts because because this it's not the most elegant way of doing it, but it, it works, I think, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Luke then asks why the dark side hasn't dominated Mara and her life after being the Emperor's Hand. And she says it did until she got rid of the last command when she killed Luke back in the day. Luke. She says, but Palpatine never really tried to turn her to the dark side the way he did Vader. What? Luke asks, since Palpatine was dark, shouldn't she be too? And Mara says she's not sure why, but she wasn't. And since Luke is the Jedi Master, he should figure it out. And Luke says he'll think about it. So we'll come back to this later. And I... Part of this, I think, actually works up to a point, and then Zon just loses me. Yep. Well, but for now, Luke is going to lead her through muscle anti-fatigue techniques because uh, the fire creepers are still just sort of here. <laughs> I should point out, I think of the scarabs from the mummy in this scene. Mm. Just have a swarm over everything. Yeah, that makes sense. Takes about an hour for the bugs to pass under them. 
R2 and all the metals are okay, but their packs are gone. At least the food was in metal containers. So they get back to slowly cutting the rock. Mara had been dreading that conversation, but Luke actually took her constructive feedback better than she expected. And the question is just, what is he going to do with this newfound knowledge that she has so wisely imparted upon him? I really do love this scene. And it, it, it in some ways feels like um something out of a fic. It, uh, every, <laughs> okay. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean I'm that not, in the most I'm loving way possible. I'm not saying this in a bad way, but every scene, like if you just distilled what's going on with Luke and Mara, if you just pulled it out of these two books and put it in a single, like where there was no other story and it was just this, it is a fan fiction. Like, think of their first interaction in Spectre of the Past. He flies through space without a suit, crash lands into her and falls on top of her. Yeah. And just kind of lays I mean, on top of her for a minute. The truth is that, like, tropes in fan fiction came from somewhere. Right. Like, fiction does these things. But the whole, like, they're so isolated, they're stuck on this planet together, they're happy to make this difficult journey and, like, work together to survive, even though they have this kind of tumultuous history. Like, this is... <laughs> well, you know what else reminds me of... This is, like, the bed-sharing fic of everyone's dreams. <laughs> you know what else reminds me of, especially what you just said just now? Because it's going to get to that point. Han and Leia and Empire. Yes. Yeah. The whole Millennium Falcon... Smoltz uh, relationship. Yeah. Stuck together, working together. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I have a very, like, soft, tender spot in my heart for stories like that. Probably because of Empire. Yeah. That's probably because it's like Empire is why it's such a popular thing in fan fiction, like you just said. It might be. I would actually wonder if it goes back even further, only because... Um, I'm sure it does. Empire is not the original of that. Not even close. No, I just mean, like, there were a lot of... I was not part of the scene because I was not born yet, but there were especially a lot of, like, Star Trek fanzines that did a lot of fan fiction during that, like, pre-internet era. And I would bet that, like... Uh, this existed there you know anyway as like they're in a dangerous situation they have to like get in the ceiling just stare into each other's eyes for the hour holding hands yeah they're basically both they're both bracing their feet on opposite walls from each other and then in order to have enough leverage to brace their feet they are pushing against each other's hands like forming a kind of triangle with their bodies what an awkward, like, I wouldn't even want to really be in that situation with you, to be honest. I mean, my arms would get so tired so quickly, we would fall, I'm sorry. I, I know, but <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I I wouldn't want to stare into another person's eyes, even if they're my husband, for an hour. Aww. It's just awkward. <laughs> like, there's... <laughs> I do lots of things with you for an hour, such as chit-chat and play video games and... I don't know, cook and stand in the kitchen and annoy our dog who doesn't like when we have kitchen conversations. But like while a bunch of bugs are swarming around, you have to like hold each other up and just like have this serious conversation while you're about to be probably eaten by bugs. Like, no, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I would rather I, I wouldn't rather die, but it would be really awkward. Han and Lando are on Lady Luck. And Lando is not a fan of clones and sees this as the craziest thing he has ever done, which that's that's saying something, Lando. You held a blaster to Boba Fett once. Yeah. I don't know how Lando like measures the crazy metric for himself, but it seems different than what I would imagine. <laughs> Lando asks Han what Baron Suntirfell was like, the original. 
and Han says he was an honorable sort and a better pilot than Han when it came to ties. That's how good he was. Even Han will admit he was better than me in a TIE fighter. Han Solo would be someone who's better than him at flying a certain kind of ship. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I don't care about this guy. He wonders why he was kept alive after the Empire recaptured him. And apparently a month or two after his capture, his wife vanished too. And no trace of either has ever been found. Just a reminder, his wife is Wedge's sister. <laughs> Tying back into the Wraith Squadron books. Yep. Carib is at the Imperial Parshun Ubicturate Station. He's told he better have big news because he's not supposed to be here. He says the attack on Leia failed because of an unknown alien ship, and he has a data card that Han put together, and he has no idea where he got it from. He hands it over and is dismissed. He's told to be careful going back to his post. So he calls Han and gives him a vector that a droid with the information is going out on. Carib's part is done. He's heading home. The droid is heading to the Sartananian system, which they probably think is where Bastion is, because this big information was just shipped out as soon as Carib handed it over in that direction. The Senate, of course, is once again arguing over the Kamas issue. Senator Dixano says that Thrawn is dead, this is a distraction, justice must be served. Booster and Merrix are on course on to meet with Bellbliss and are watching the Senate in action, and Booster says they are all idiots. Yeah, well, so are you. But I also think that's probably the most you've ever agreed with Booster. Yeah, yeah. He also says there are at least 20 systems that have petitioned to rejoin the Empire. The rumors say it's actually 100. Bella Bliss says they must find the actual Kamas document, and he wants to borrow the errant venture. Somehow those two things are related. Booster immediately says no, but Mirax asks why. Bella Bliss wants to use it in a data raid at Yaga Minor. They can't use a New Republic ship, because if one is pulled away for a secret attack, people will notice. Booster says the ship needs a lot of repair work to get it up to Imperial standards, but he'll do it if the ship is fixed and upgraded, and he keeps all of the upgrades when this is over. Bella Bliss agrees. He says he'll provide the crew, but Booster can still serve as captain. Merrick's will be coming, too. Everyone who knows about the operation has to. Absolute secrecy. Luke and Mara finally finish cutting through the Cortosis. And they've also received comb drive reinforcements. As they go in, R2 points out a power source down the hall in the opposite direction, and Keeper promises says, that way lies destruction. No one has ever returned from going over there. <laughs> Weird. Interesting. Splitter of Stones shows them another way, though. They get to a staircase, and Mara says it looks like hijama building material. She thought the fortress might be made of it when she first saw it, but wasn't sure until now. The material can absorb turbo laser fire. That's intense. Wow. Seems handy. Yeah, why isn't everything built out of that? Probably expensive. Yeah, and rare. As they head up, they see vertical cables on the wall. R2 says that these are power lines, but only three of the 20 are active. The rest are still functional, though. Luke and Mara both detect an alien presence in the Force, and Luke says it's the same species as the pilots that shot him down. Mara says it feels like Thrawn, and Luke agrees. Dun-dun! It's bothering Mara that she can't hear the comb K or the comb jaw in the Force, she wonders what she has to do to break through the invisible barrier and have full Jedi powers. Luke might have the answer, but she's not going to ask him. She's a little too proud for that right now. They get to a door, and it's locked from their side. So whatever is on the other side can't get through to them. Interesting. Weird. So they open it and go through it, and they come across some empty barracks, and they keep going up and can feel themselves getting closer to the alien mines. Suddenly, they are fired on. Mara is hit in the shoulder, and they retreat the way they came. They go back through the door and lock it. Luke is about to take them back downstairs, but Mara says, go up instead. The aliens will look for them below. Luke agrees. 
Mara's shoulder is in rough shape, so Luke puts her in a healing trance. And the child asks if she'll die, and Luke says no. The child then refers to Mara as Luke's beloved companion. And Luke thinks, that Luke thinks to himself that he can't fall in love with Mara. It's too risky. Gariel died, and Callista lost her force powers. The list of tragedies sometimes seems endless. Luke, buddy, it's two people. I know that both ended poorly, but... That's also, not- Gariel didn't die because of him. I mean... Callista didn't lose her force powers because of him. You could argue both. No, you can't. No? No! Correction. Gariel didn't die because she loved him. Yes. Callista didn't lose her force powers because she loved him. Did events in their lives take shape because Luke happened to bumble or in their deaths because Luke happened to bumble by them? Yes. Like, would would Bakura have been involved in the whole Corellian crisis were it not for Luke? I guess not for some stupid reason. Well, actually, they might have because Mon Mothma wanted to use them regardless, but I don't think Gariel would have been involved if Luke wasn't there. I don't, I just don't agree with that. Like, Gariel cared deeply about her people and about protecting them from threats. So, Luke is still doing this thing that Mara has already been like, stop freaking doing yes. that. Yes, he is. Oh, I just want to shake him. Actually, I want to force lightning him some more. <laughs> and again, just only two people. I, I feel like this is on leaving open the possibility of other writers coming in and writing other things that may have happened before this point. But he, of course, he doesn't know who those people can't be. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's why he writes it like this. But eh, doesn't it quite. just seems crazy to say the list of tragedies sometimes seems endless when the list is two people quite. It quite literally ends like I, I feel like if you focus less on the love and more like, you know, other people who had issues um, like, say, you could talk about Han and Leia, or Kip, or even Corrin, or even some of the issues that Mara's yeah, had Luke's around him. Yeah, Luke's just general difficulty with maintaining any kind of relationship. I think that would have been a better track yes. than just the love life. This is dumb. <laughs> but, if Mara is right, all had happened while he was under the dark side's influence. If he really isn't any longer, then things could be different. But no, not now. Not with Mara. <laughs> Her death vision comes back to him. He gazes at her, a quiet ache in his heart. That may be her destiny, but until it happens, he'll tear his own life apart if necessary to prevent it from happening. He says goodnight to her and gently kisses her lips. I'm going to scream. <laughs> did you like my dramatic reading? Yes, I did. It was fun for me. Thanks, because otherwise the scene is not fun for me. No? No. I think it's stupid. <laughs> I actually like it. Well, I, I, I like that he's listening to, like like you said, he's doing the same thing Mara's been saying he's been doing. But now he's actually listening to her and says, no, I can make things different because I'm not under the dark side anymore. Just not now. Hasn't been for a little while. He's broken free of it. No, I'm saying, but he's still saying, like, not now, not with her. Which, by the way, is fine for me because the reason that he comes to this realization is just because... Uh, I think it's Child of Winds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Child of Winds. Calls her his beloved companion. And it's almost like a record screech happens and everything stops and the word beloved echoes in his brain over and over and over again. And he's like, oh my God, I love Mara. 
we've both seen many stories of a similar thing where it's clear that two people were... And I don't like it. Really? I didn't know that. Here's the issue. For me, there has not been enough buildup to this moment. That I agree with. And so to me, it feels false. Okay. Like, I think that what Zahn is leaning on is the fact that, like, even though a lot of it has been off screen, quote unquote, for the last... Decade. How many years has it been since the Thrawn trilogy? Ten years. Ten years. They did have a connection and they have had interactions and there has been meaning in those interactions and they've known each other for so long. And so like, this is just the last piece to click into place, but like, because it hasn't been on screen for me, I don't buy it. And like yet she's been there at, in almost every story she's been around that Luke's been around. Him. And but they've like, had some have, meaningful connection in them. It's just, it's been such a small part of it's it. It's been so limited. Yeah. And, I mean, don't even get me started about the consent issue of kissing someone who's unconscious. Like, Luke, please stop. Don't do that. <laughs> Definitely different vibes in the 90s, I guess. But you know what? No, he should have known better. I'm talking about Zahn now, not Luke. He should have known better. This is weird. I don't like it. Forehead kiss. <sighs> I feel like that's just like a gateway to, you know, like... Don't don't give somebody physical affection who can't decide whether or not they want to receive it. Okay. Kind of any like unless you're already like it's different for like you and I, right? Like we're in a committed relationship. If you like while I'm half asleep, kiss me on the forehead or something, I'm not gonna be like, that's assault. <laughs> but like they have such a contentious relationship. They have for a long time. Like she would kick his butt. If she, she might like it. That's a different problem. That's a different <laughs> issue. Anyway, this was just... I, I felt like all the air go out of me in this mm. section because it was just not what I wanted. Like, I, I had already felt like we are running short on time for this to be done in a way that is satisfying to me, and I know I'm not going to get it, but it could have still been better than this. So I just... I didn't I didn't like it. Sorry. Uh Okay. I think I managed to record enough content through that whole section that didn't contain swears that you won't have to beat me. So, you're, you're welcome. welcome. Wedge has tried to look up recent ship arrivals, but he hasn't been able to. All three discuss how someone would take out the shield generator. They agree that a frontal assault wouldn't work. Maybe if someone did something to the generator's power supply, that would do something. Miranda says they should check outgoing messages. If someone is sloppy on the receiving end, it could help them find whoever is here. For now, they'll break into the construction records building at night to get the schematics of the generator. They also wonder if Vengeance is maybe set up under a new business, so they'll look up a list of businesses that have recently started. The warship Camp Bothui is up to 112. Cliff saw Wedge and Corrin at the comm center with an old woman. He thinks that they should be killed tonight. Navet says not yet, they don't know anything. Paleon receives more reports that Thrawn is alive. Things are getting tense on his ship. Everyone has their own theory. Paleon decides that they've waited long enough and gets ready to leave. But just then, a ship enters the system. Leia is on it and asks to come aboard. Dun-dun! Paleon greets her and welcomes her aboard the Chimera. Leia actually saw him once before when she was ten. He notes that an Alderanian, a Kamasi, and a Nogri are here, the three with arguably the most to hate the Empire. <laughs> Eligos says, each of our worlds was destroyed by the hand of Emperor Palpatine, and he too is now dead. Continuing to nurture the fires of hatred would gain us nothing. 
Leia tells Paleon that Gent was able to reconstruct Vermel's message, and Paleon's not happy about Vermel being intercepted by a Star Destroyer. And Leia asks to talk aboard the Millennium Falcon. Her bodyguard insists on this. Paleon agrees to her request. So basically the Falcon came aboard the Star Destroyer, and now they're going to go back onto the Falcon. And talk there. Once on board, Paleon says that the Empire has lost. Leia agrees, but she asks if the sentiment is shared by others. He says other Imperial leaders have reluctantly agreed with it. Elagos asks if they've lost what remains to be negotiated. Paleon says the Empire may help them avert a civil war, and Leia asks how. Before going into that, Paleon first lists what the Empire wants. He wants the current borders confirmed and accepted by Coruscant, free trade and travel between the Empire and the Republic, no border skirmishes, no propaganda pressure against them. Sakisak asks what about non-humans in the Empire. Paleon says the human domination of Palpatine's time is long over, but he also says systems may leave the Empire for the New Republic, as long as systems may leave the New Republic for the Empire. Also, if they find another superweapon, they will work with the New Republic to dismantle it. Leia asks about Thrawn. Paleon says he doesn't know what's going on with that. It happened while he was waiting here. He doesn't know what to think. He was there when Thrawn appeared to die. Leia says if he's alive, these talks may be premature. Paleon says Thrawn will certainly relieve him of command, but the Moffs authorized him to do this. It could be rescinded, but for now he has the authority to conduct these negotiations. Leia realizes that Paleon stayed to make sure the process was started, so the Moffs or Thrawn couldn't easily stop it. That's how committed he is to this. He genuinely wants peace. As I've said, there's a reason why Paleon's my favorite Imperial. <laughs> and yeah. this series is where it really comes to light. Yes, yes. Paleon says he would give the New Republic the Kamas documents if he can get it. But he could use a decryption expert to help. He would take Ghent to Yaga Minor to help get it, because he knows he cannot go to Bastion to find a real copy. Moff Disra is in command there, and he opposes the peace. Leia says she can't supply anyone until there is an official agreement, and Paleon says that could be too late. Gent interrupts them and says he'll do it. Elagos told him what happened at Kamas, and he also told him that more hatred was wrong. And I love Gent so much. He's very impressionable, though. <laughs> he is. I also hate to say it, his storyline after this point is one of the things that could have been dropped. Yeah, yeah. But I love Gent so much. <laughs> Keep Gent alive. He's fine. I know. Keep Gent's story alive. <laughs> Paleon will send Gent to Yaga Minor in a separate ship. Paleon has to make his way to Bastion. All parties leave, hoping for peace. Paleon thinks the preliminary talks went as well as they could. Leia is willing to talk about most things, but she clearly wasn't telling him everything. Yeah, she didn't mention about the Han going to Bastion thing. Of course not. That would be complicated. <laughs> Leia asks Elagos what he thinks. And he thinks that Paleon is sincere. Leia didn't sense any duplicity, but with Thrawn back, she isn't sure what to think. Elagos asks why Le Leia didn't tell Paleon about Han going to Bastion. And she says she just can't trust Paleon enough yet. But she's unsure if she did the right thing by protecting Han, but letting Gent go. She'll meditate on it. And I, I think she did the right thing here. Because Gent is the one who said, I'm going. Yeah. In front of Paleon. Han didn't. So... I'm perfectly okay with the choices made here. I don't think they did anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a tough situation. It is. And I get why it gnaws at her. But I think she made the right choice. So speaking of Bastion, Han and the others are wearing M'Challa Order Scholar robes on Bastion to blend in. The service droid recognizes them. They've been here for the past three days, and it offers to help them. 
Han declines. He just wants a station assignment for them. They've made no progress and it's getting to Han. Mogid is not with them, but connected through Lobot from the ship. Carolee is getting frustrated. Han and Lando have not lettered a card and shot up. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> she's followed them to the library the last couple of days, but, but this is getting her nowhere. She knows she's in Imperial space, but not exactly sure where. Three more systems have joined the Empire. Flim is not happy. The alien ship has spooked him. Tierce thinks it was the Hand of Thrawn on the ship, or his agent, or someone from Captain Park. The final report on the ship's sighting comes in, and apparently it was not seen at Patrick Minor, as was initially reported. It's actually two different sightings, one in the Karun system, and the other either in the Noskin or Drompari systems. Also, the footage was not made by a TIE fighter. Tierce and Distra know that they've been betrayed. Darn clones. Flim asks, what did the clones have to gain from doing this? They realize someone has found Bastion. Tierce sends out orders to watch for spies, but to identify rather than detain. He doesn't think there are saboteurs here, given that they've been here for several days already. He wants to put Flim in front of them, but Flim doesn't like this idea. <laughs> Distra agrees with Tierce. He's then notified that Paleon has also just arrived on Bastion, so everything's really happening all at once. This next scene's a little... But in a delightful way, I think. Yeah, it's fun. While eating lunch, Han spots Captain Zothep just randomly. <laughs> and he says, well, it looks like we found the link between the pirates and the clones that Luke was looking for. Convenient. Carolee decides to leave Han behind and follow Zothep instead. He's entering a building through what's clearly an escape route, and she thinks about killing Zothep right now to avenge the slaughter on Lorardian, but decides to follow for now instead. Han and the others go back into the library to keep searching, but Mogid then warns them that security frequencies have become very active. They decide to head back to the Lady Luck. Five blocks later, Imperial Security is following Han and the rest. They spot a Sabacc tournament, and Han tells Lando to go in and cause chaos. <laughs> so Lando goes in, shoots a hole in the ceiling with a slug thrower, and shouts, We'll settle this right here and now, you mangy calc brain. Everybody else, out! People run out, and as security rushes in, Han stuns them. They then go out the back way. I love this plan. Because, <laughs> of course, this is what's going to happen at a gambling tournament. Everyone's yeah. expecting this, like, in the back of their mind. Uh-oh, someone owes someone something. It's going to turn bad. Yeah, it's going to get bloody. Paleon goes to Distro with a data pad of all of Distro's wrongdoings. And Distro denies all claims made on it. It wasn't me. He says that Paleon's sources must be wrong. Someone is deliberately doing this to make him look bad. Tears interrupts and hands Disra a data pad that says Han and Lando have been identified but lost. So Disra steps away, leaving Tears with Paleon. Disra asks Thrawn how the spies got away. He says it was two experienced fighters versus two security personnel with little experience, but it should help fill in holes in their security for the future. Flynn has really done a good job of embodying Thrawn in public, and I very much appreciate that. Yeah, because they they're in this, like... Flim is in, like, the Situation Room or something. Yeah. So they're in kind of public and in front of other people. It feels like Thrawn, the way he says it. Yeah. Both Flim and Disra have come to the conclusion that the people here are here for a copy of the Kamas documents. Flim and Disra talk privately, and Flim says neither Han nor Lando are slicers. So Disra thinks the third being with them must be, the third being being Lobot. But Flim says, no, that's probably Lobot. He's not a slicer either. But then Flim remembers a trick they heard about involving Verpines. They then go back to everyone else, and Thrawn orders a wide-spectrum frequency scan to, and a concentrate on verpine biocom frequencies. Zothip goes up a turbo lift, and Carolee hitches a ride on it. Tears tells Paleon that he's never been to Yaga Minor and doesn't know what the Admiral is talking about. Paleon knows he's lying. 
Disra returns and sends Tears back to help Flim. Disra then receives another call, and Paleon watches Disra's face just go white as the blood drains from it. Paleon asks, dude, are, are you okay? You look kind of terrible. And Disra's like, I- I'm fine. But he does have to leave the room again. And Paleon is then left alone in Disra's office. Paleon orders his A to start looking around. Disra tells Tears that Zothip is here in his quarters. Tears decides to show Thrawn to Zothip to scare him. Why not? Why not? Lobot stumbles and Lando realizes someone is doing a comm echo search for Verpine Biocom frequencies because the connection between Lobot and Mogut is just it's going. So Lando sees a droid shop and gets an idea. He goes to the astromech section and asks someone if they can do a test. He says he wants the droid to transmit noise on multiple frequencies. And the shop, the salesman's like, yeah, sure, we can do that. Lando then tells the sales representative that he's going to get a speeder and drive away to see how far the signals go. He then points to a random person and says, he'll stay and keep an eye on things from here for us. And again, the sales representative's like, yeah, sure, we got someone here. That's, that's cool. We're good. Lando thinks this will blanket the echo search at least for a little while. And then instead of making straight for the spaceport, they decided to go around the back way and approach it from the other side. I love this con that Lando does. Like, so rarely do we get to see Lando, like, mid-con. Yeah. And this is just, it's a fun little one. It's like, yeah, that dude over there, he's with me. It's fine. (laughs) It makes you wonder, how long until the sales representative approached this random person? And it's like, are we good? Do you want to buy all these astromechs? And the person's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's delightful. Carolee is hidden and listening to Zothip. She now knows the pirate is working with Disra, though it's not known or sanctioned by the rest of Imperial leadership. Zothip orders two of his men to hide and act as backup if needed. They get near Carolee and she kills them quietly. <laughs> Shh, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. <laughs> Disra walks in and Carolee notes, with a warrior, because that's how T- Tears carries himself. And Zothip is not happy to see Tears. He wants just to talk to Disra and no one else. He tells both of them that he wants full compensation for the battlecruiser and 800 men lost. Thrawn then walks in, silencing Zothip. He's like, I want this. this." Meanwhile, Paleon's aide, Dre, finds a secret drawer in less than a minute. Two minutes later, he's got it open and finds eight data cards inside, three of them official, the other five are not. They look through them and find the orders to capture Vermal. Paleon decides to take them. They're going to leave now and go free Vermal personally. Thrawn says the Empire will rise again. They don't need allies, but they aren't averse to them. Disra is called again and told the, sh- the spies have escaped again, and Thrawn orders a grid pattern search to locate them. Disra tells Zothip he can leave, but Zothip says no, not until I get paid. Zothip then whistles and Tears just moves. A fight breaks out, and a woman appears, helping dispatch the pirates and and Disra and Tears are like, who are you, crazy lady? Tears is ready to fight her, but Thrawn thanks her. He recognizes her as a mistral shadow guard. One pirate is still alive. He hasn't moved. He's named Control. He will take over the pirates. He wants nothing other than to leave alive, and he'll keep the Preybird operation going. Thrawn then asks Carolee about the offer he made. And Carolee's like, what offer? You weren't, you weren't talking to me, you crazy blue person. <laughs> Thrawn then says, where he previously mentioned allies for the Empire, he was making the offer to her, not to Zothip. He knew she was there. He never once mentioned Zothip or the pirates by name, and Carolee thinks back and is like, I guess he didn't. Huh, that's weird. How did he know? While Flim is working his magic, Disra excuses himself. He needs to get back to Paleon. He goes back to his office, but the guard tells him that Paleon left five or six minutes ago. 
He goes to his desk and sees the data cards are gone and calls for tears. He tries to call Rimsey Station, but Paleon has blocked all communications to them. Disra is worried, but Tears isn't. He says Thrawn needs to give Han and Lando a show. Paleon doesn't matter. The Mistral gave them the landing bay number. If Paleon comes after them, they'll just say they did everything under Thrawn's direction. It's a good plan. Yeah. Lando says this is too easy. They are almost to the Lady Luck when Thrawn suddenly appears via hollow in front of them. He asks them to put their weapons down. He just wants to talk. So, after putting the weapons down, Han asks how they were found. Thrawn then steps out in person. He says once he knew it was a Verpine, they looked for ships that showed up 8, 12, or 17 days before the probe left the station. Those numbers are apparently important to Verpine, anchored deeply within their psyche. Han's convinced this is Thrawn. Thrawn then gives them the Kamas document and says there's no catch. He merely wishes to help. Han doesn't buy it. He accuses Thrawn of the Bothan riot and says they found the Imperial Redirection Crystal. Thrawn says the last five they had were stolen six months ago and tells them to check with Borsk about them. His private army were the ones who stole them. Thrawn says, good day, gentlemen. Have a good voyage. And walks away. Han, Lando, and Lobot quickly leave. Flim is incredibly proud of himself right now. And he should be. Tyr says they bought it. Flim says he made up the bit about the stolen weapons. The Disra isn't happy about that. And Tyr says, a civil war is going to break out in seven days. No one's going to care by then about the story that Flynn made up. Flynn says he was also lying to the Mistral. He had no idea who or what Lorardian is, but he was playing the con man and she bought it. Basically because he didn't say anything specific, he knew he could spin the tale of, hey, I was actually talking to you, even though I had no idea you were there. Yeah. Disra says she's adamant that the Mistral don't work for the Empire, but she has agreed to call one of their leaders to talk with them. The Lady Luck makes it to hyperspace. Han says they're in trouble. With Thrawn back, they can't trust anything they see. Mogat is given the file to go over to see if it's been altered. The wild card gets to Exocron. Card is hiding his nervous as well, but Chata can see it. Admiral Trey David, second in command to Supreme Admiral Horseo Dar of the Exocron Combined Airspace Fleet, asks them to identify themselves. Card does so, and then asks to land and says their intentions are peaceful. Admiral David has heard they wish to see George Cardas, and Card says, yes, that's true. It's vital they meet with him. They are cleared to land and are greeted by Antuni upon arrival. So I guess he actually was telling the truth earlier. Only Shada and 3PO come with Card. They are taken to a home, and Card asks Antu to go in first. Card is struck by the odor of death inside and sees an old man lying in bed. He doesn't really recognize Card. Card is disappointed. His terror was for nothing. Only an empty shell of a man remains. Card asks how long Cardas has been like this, and Entu says that Cardas is very old. Card then asks about Cardas's data library, and Entu says, whatever he did with it, he did it long before I came into his service. Raikos has had a ship following the wild card and is getting ready to attack Exocron. His entire fleet is on its way here. This was why Entu wanted to bring Card on his ship, because it's not trackable. Card decides to stay and help Exocron fight. Nice of him. It's like, oh, this is my fault. How disappointed were you in this Cardos reveal? Pretty disappointed. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But also kind of laughing at Card. <laughs> like, haha, you thought you were going to die, idiot. That's just an old man. It's just on an death old bag. man. He's sad. He's dying. <laughs> the errant venture is more chaotic than Booster has ever seen it, which I feel like that's saying a lot. Yeah. Booster wants to know the details of the plan, 
And Bellabless says the Air Invention will go in while the other ships attack Yaga Minor. So hopefully it will just be ignored. As soon as they have the document, they'll transmit it out. And Boosh is then like, but what happens to us once you know, we've sent the document out? And Bellabless says, well, we're going to surrender. It doesn't matter what happens to us at that point. Bellabless then says Booster doesn't have to stay on the ship, but Booster won't let it go into combat without him. Because Booster realizes, oh, we're going to die. That's the plan for us to die. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm, I actually, this, I know you've had a lot of problems with Booster in the past, but I am very impressed by Booster in this book. Are you? Yes, because he could have taken the choice to not be on the ship, but he accepts the sacrifice. I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think he is just too attached to this hunk of metal, and he's like, I will just go down with this ship. Uh, that's part of it, but I think he also realizes how important, like, Bella Bliss is willing to die. He realizes how important this is. Yeah, I think there's some part of him that does. I just, I will never be impressed by Booster. That's fair. Vengeance has put little organic time bombs on Bothan Tech's clothing, and they are expecting the Bothans to call them any minute about it. <laughs> Corn and Wedge then walk into the pet shop. They Uh-oh. say they're just looking around. Then Miranda walks in and asks if they have any ratterthists. Navit says he'll check. He's interrupted by a call from the Boffins. Apparently an insect infestation problem has occurred, and they are asked how to deal with it. Navet offers to go and help, but is told, no, no, no off-worlders are allowed here. However, the Boffins, cha- the Boffins change their minds and says they'll pick Navet up in 30 minutes. Steve shows Ghent where he'll be working. He's impressed by the equipment he's been given. Steve recommends changing the code on the lock after he leaves so no one else can get in. Ghent gets started. He thinks this will be fun. Nevet's equipment is scanned thoroughly and is let in, so they start spraying to kill the metal mites, the insects that have infested this place. They're killing the bugs, but besides killing them, they're also spraying food. Because the scanners aren't looking for food, they're looking for explosives and materials. A bit of organic food matter? No, it's not going to notice. Later, Navette realizes the identity of the New Republic agents, Wedge Antilles. And Navette's like, you know what? It's time to kill them. Wedge and the others have visited 50 different shops. Corin thinks the pet place is suspicious, and Miranda agrees. They acted too perfect to her. Wedge then gets the call that they have to leave and rejoin Bella Bliss. Miranda is not happy. She's going to keep working on this, even though she'll be alone. And that is where we'll end the first half of Vision of the Future. Anything you want to say about the first half of this book? I feel like I've made my opinions loud and clear. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) What about you? The first half of this book, there's a lot of setup going on. Yeah. There is not payoff until the second half. So that is one of the unfortunate things about splitting this episode too, but frankly, this book, it is too long. This is a short Wheel of Time book. I think it's actually longer than the Wheel of Time book I just finished reading. By page count, yeah, it might be. This is about seven on the Island of World of Six something, isn't it? I, I actually don't know the page count because I read a, an ebook version, but yeah, like. And that's one of the shorter Wheel of Time books. I know, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of setup, but like, I don't think we can realistically put out a four hour podcast episode. Especially not after how long Inspector of the Past was. Yeah. Yeah, we got to draw the line somewhere, I guess. And this is where we're choosing to draw it. <laughs> I guess it will never be drawn again, since isn't this the longest EU book? It is, but Star by Star is also over 200,000 words. So that one oh, could boy. Yeah. be split in two. 
And there's a couple of other books in the New York Order and other places where I th- I could see us doing this again. Okay. So I can look forward to part two of Visit the Future coming out next month on February 4th. And of course, in two weeks on January 21st, we'll be discussing the next short story in Tales from Drawler's Palace. A Bad Feeling, the tale of EV99, written by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. Thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Crystal for this crazy idea. And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter slash X at tk331podcast. If you like this podcast, tell a friend about it. Tell a family member about it. If you hate this podcast, I guess tell an enemy about it. (laughs) And leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast reviewing platform of your choice. Thank you, by the way. I noticed recently that we have five, eight, sorry, eight five-star reviews on Spotify. Wow. Or ratings. I don't think Spotify allows you to leave a review, or at least I couldn't figure out a way to see if those there were reviews attached to those ratings. Thank you so much. And of course, when this comes out, those won't be quite so recent, but still, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and now here it is, Yamona Star Wars. The danger would be extremely small, Paleon insisted. Doesn't matter, Ghent said. His voice was trembling, but his jaw was set firmly. On the way from Coruscant, Elagos told me all about what happened to his world. It was terrible. Everyone killed. All the animals, too. I hated the people who'd done it. I really hated them. And I hated the Bothans for making the whole thing happen in the first place. He looked over at Elagos. But he told me hatred was wrong, that it was one of those things that hurt the hater more than the people he hated. He told me there can be justice without hatred and punishment without revenge. He said we were all responsible for what we do and what we don't do, and no one should have to pay for someone else's crimes. He locked eyes with Leia. I'm a slicer, Counselor Organa Solo. I'm a good slicer, and I'm responsible for what I do and what I don't do, just like you or Elagos. If I can help and I don't, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. He waved a hand helplessly. I'm not too good at stuff like this. You understand what I'm trying to say? (laughs) 